want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit the like button on this video and any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. So in today's episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different than a lot of my other episodes and I'm going to provide a stock thesis. We're going to sit down and analyze a specific stock investment and I'm going to present this to you as an idea for you to consider. I have been given feedback that if I want to attract additional or attract investing clients that would be interested in me managing their money in the future, that what I should do more of is speak through my investing process. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to look at my investing process through the lens of one of the stocks that I currently own. Now, I'm recording this podcast in April 2021. The disclosure that I want to put out there is I do currently own the stock that we're going to be talking about today, Solitron Devices, um, but I make no assurance that I will continue to own this stock at all points of time in the future. I may sell the stock at any point um, for any reason, and, and I'm making no promises in that regard, but it is worth considering um, whether it affects your judgment about the company that I'm talking about, a company that I personally own. Some people would say that this is skin in the game, that I have the skin in the game because I'm talking about a company I own. I have the backing behind it that I believe what I'm saying. Some people would say that it has a conflict of interest because if the stock price goes up, then I would potentially benefit or profit from that. So you have to make your own decision, but I'm going to talk about a company that I own because I think it will provide the useful framework for understanding how I think about my investing process, how I go through that process. So we're going to, this is going to be a relatively long form podcast because I'm going to discuss the whole work that I did on this company, kind of discuss what I went through and how I look at the company, both when I originally bought it in 2020 and how I'm thinking about the company today. I hope this is useful to you. Whether it's useful or not, please consider giving me feedback. Um, what This will allow me to consider whether I should do more shows like this or less shows like this. So if, if you're interested in giving me that feedback, you can do, you can DM me on Twitter at Trey Henniger, or you can always send me an email at Trey at DIYinvesting.org. So those are your options. You can feel free to give me feedback, your thoughts on this episode. I would really appreciate that. Good or bad, positive or negative, um, anything that you can give me feedback on will help. So let's dive right on in. About three minutes on the intro. A little long, so we'll dive on into Solotron devices now. 
So, Solatron Devices, we'll begin with a brief overview of the company. Solatron Devices is um, a manufacturing company. So, there's your industry. Think about it. It's both a manufacturing company and it works within the overall breadth of the defense industry. You could also consider it a semiconductor company because it manufactures power semiconductors um, for the defense industry. So what is the defense industry? So this is a US-based company. The components that it creates go into defense equipment for the United States Department of Defense. These are gonna be aerospace products. These could be um, military weapons. These could be military defense um, products, things like that. It could go into planes, stuff along those lines. Um, one of the defense missiles that um, the United States government uses you, incorporates the power semiconductors from Solatron devices. And the way this industry generally works is you have contracts set up where the U.S. government seeks out the interest of contractors to say, I want to build a new um, Air Force plane. And this Air Force plane is going to have certain requirements. It needs to be able to fly this speed. It needs to have a certain turning radius. It needs to be able to attack 500 miles away from the aircraft carrier. Um, it needs to have all these sorts of requirements. And then contractors, um, what are known as defense contractors, will bid on that job. And that might be Boeing. It might be Lockheed Martin, it might be Raytheon, various defense general dynamics, various defense contractors will bid on these jobs, submit proposals on how they could build a plane that meets these requirements. So Solatron Devices is not one of those defense manufacturers. Solatron Devices is one of the manufacturers that provides components to the general contractors. So it is a subcontractor of these general contractors. So we're one step further removed from the U.S. government defense department. So the U.S. government issues a contract to, say, Raytheon, and I'm using Raytheon intentionally because they are one of Solatron's largest customers. And then Raytheon says, hey, we have the contract for this plane. We would like components to be built for that plane. And so they now have a specification and Solatron Devices is is now given a contract to provide components to a specific specification. So that's the general framework of how the industry works. We are not, if you're an owner in Solatron Devices, you're not providing, you're not winning the contracts directly with the Defense Department primarily. Now, there might be cases where that it, that does happen, but generally you're a subcontractor providing components to a general contractor. And you're doing it usually with custom jobs. So there's specific requirements that are custom made for a specific job and the contract is, is adjusted accordingly. So you're going to be building stuff for aerospace, satellites, etc., defense, missiles, stuff like that. So that kind of gives the overall framework. So why is defense interesting? So when I look at a business, the first thing I'm going to do when I'm analyzing a stock is I look at 
the quality of the business. This is my first step. It's my first filter. I want to own high quality businesses. And so when I'm analyzing a company, I want to understand what are the drivers of the business? What makes this business tick? What makes it attractive? Is this something that can earn high returns on investment over the long term? Is this something that has a moat? Does it have long durability, short durability? Those sorts of questions. I'm trying to understand the business itself. We're not talking about stock price. We're not talking about valuation. We're not talking about any of those things. To begin with, we're understanding the business, which is why I began this episode with business framework. What is the framework that goes into how this business works? So we talked a little bit about its place in the hierarchy in the defense industry. So well, how does the defense industry work within the US? Well, one component of that is that when you're thinking about the defense industry, you need to think about it's very country-centric, country-specific. So this is the U.S. defense industry. Well, how does the U.S. defense industry work? Well, for one part, and this is going to be true for most comp- most countries around the world, they are going to want to source their defense components from solely within their country. So if the U.S. wants to build a new jet fighter, they want to have all the components manufacturing capabilities for that jet fighter within the country. Because if war breaks out, they need to be able to build more planes without depending upon foreign suppliers. So if the U.S. were to go to war with China, they would be at risk if China was the one manufacturing all of their planes or the components for their planes. So what it does is it limits the manufacturing options and it provides a barrier to entry for new competitors. Because if you want to compete in the U.S. defense industry, you have to be based in the U.S. The U.S. is not going to buy its parts from China. It's not going to buy its parts from Europe. It's not going to buy its parts from overseas. It wants to buy its parts from within the United States. Now, there's some flexibility here. Um, There are some cases where that's not 100% true. um, But it would usually be something unique like where the U.S. has a captive ally, um, basically an ally that couldn't feasibly side against the U.S. in any future war, um, something like Canada or Mexico that is uh, dependent upon its defense capabilities to the United States. It shares a large land border that is indefensible um, if the United States were to use it for an invasive purposes. And so there can be some overlap in some adjacent countries. Or you might have something like the United Kingdom where there's a very long-term ally relationship with that country. However, it's still going to be 95, 99% true that competitors for your products are going to be based in the U.S., which means, it, this is very important because it means that you're not going to face price issues as a business from foreign competitors that are underselling. So in many manufacturing businesses, because again, we have multiple industries here that are overlapping. You have the defense industry, manufacturing industry, and the semiconductor industry. In many manufacturing companies, they face price competition from abroad. So labor is cheaper in China and India than it is in the United States. And so when a manufacturing company in the United States wants to build and produce a product, normally they have to be aware that there's going to be pricing pressure from abroad, forcing them to keep their prices lower than they otherwise would like. 
That's not going to be true in the defense industry. You're not going to have cheaper labor overseas producing your product because the products can only be made here. Even if you have the same technological expertise, etc., 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 you have a fixed cost competitive basis. So you might still face price competition with other competitors, but it might be price competition between, say, Florida, where Solotron is based, and Texas. It's not going to be price competition between Florida and India. So just a, a useful thing to think about. One of the weaknesses, normal weaknesses of a manufacturing company is price pressure from overseas. Solotron doesn't face that. So that's a big point in the positive favor for the quality of this business. The second piece is is that it's a defense company again. And one of the things defense companies do, like everything involved with the defense in the United States government, is there's all sorts of approvals needed to become a defense company, needed to work in the defense industry. You're going to have the need to be certified as a defense company, meeting certain quality measures, meeting certain security protocols, because you're so integrated into the military system, the military industrial complex of the United States. So these things raise barriers to entry, they make it harder to compete. Um, And it means generally, competition between businesses in the defense industry is not price-based. You're going to be dependent more on quality, um, delivery times, reliability, and you're going to compete on areas that are not as price dependent, which is all good for the quality of the business because the lack of price competition means that you're more likely going to be able to price your products in a way that leads to higher margins, higher returns on capital than a comparable business in another industry. We're not talking infinite returns on capital. We're not talking... Um, software types, gross margins, you're still going to have relatively reasonable margins because the government is going to force you to. They're not going to offer you just free money. But the lack of price-specific competition is going to give you some cushion into your business model. This is especially important when you think about the semiconductor industry. So because Solotron's producing semiconductors, you have to also consider how the semiconductor industry works. Well, on a typical basis, on a non-defense semiconductor industry, it's very cyclical. It's a business that's driven by large oversupply and then large undersupply at various times. So the price of the product can vary significantly. It's almost like a commodity. That's not going to be true Because of those defense characteristics I already mentioned, because it's nested within the defense industry, there's very few suppliers for these types of products. So in many cases, Solotron might be the only provider for their product to their general contractor. They're making custom products versus it, which is much more dependent upon meeting a quality spectrum instead of meeting um, a need for off-the-shelf products. So if you could walk into a store and buy the product, then it's not necessarily going to be as high quality. It's not going to be as high of a price. And so the ability to provide a custom-made product to a specific specification, um, while it can be replicated, often isn't. 
And one of the reasons it isn't is because the markets are small. This is a niche manufacturer. As we're going to talk about the company, it's relatively small. Um, as I'm talking about it today, I believe the market cap is somewhere around $15 million. So it's a relatively small company. Revenues are right around $10, $11 million per year. And so you're not going to have the incentive where you have this massive market where there's billions and billions of dollars of revenues coming in and everyone wants to compete in that. That's not what we're going to see here. This is a relatively small market and there's not a major incentive for new competitors to come into market because when they look at the total market, they're going to say, well, I could go in and I could take a few million dollars in revenue, but that's not enough to sustain a new business, which limits competition and it allows Solotron to have um, basically um, not monopolistic behavior, but because generally they're providing a single product to a single customer, there isn't competition between them. They might not have multiple people producing that product, but you also don't have multiple people buying that product. So because everything's custom made, you can't demand infinite prices because the customer um, knows that you're, ju you're just providing it to one customer. So there's both bargaining power on both sides, which keeps, I think it's monopsony, where you have um, a monopoly supplier and monopoly customer, and they have to work together to come to a, a price agreement. And what that generally does is you price it so that both people can win, and you really differentiate on stuff like reliability. So what do all these things mean? I've given a pretty broad overview, which I think is important because as we dive into the business um, and the valuation as we go through this, you need to understand the business. If you're going to buy any company, understanding the business is the top priority. It's my first part of the process. Everything drives from buying a good business. Everything I do derives from having a good business. So if, if I don't believe it's a good business, then I can't buy with the conviction I need for the type of portfolio I run. So why is the defense industry a great industry? Because what you want first and foremost is you want to operate in a great industry. And I've given the frame, the, the little pieces, but let's get into the framework now. So the defense industry is always an essential business. So when I first started buying Soltron devices, I believe it was April of 2020. And I was buying during the very middle of the COVID pandemic shutdowns. And of course, as a manufacturing business, they're essential. And as a defense manufacturing company, they're doubly essential. The government's never going to shut down their own defense industry, which means that you don't have to worry about government shutdowns from this virus or future viruses. Solotron's going to stay open. They're going to continue being able to produce their products, which is a key sign of a high quality business, especially in the days of pandemic based shutdowns. Second piece, the government is a reliable source of income. We don't have to worry about the government missing payments. We don't have to worry about the government um, reneging on their contracts. The reliability of receivables is going to be very high. You're not going to have to worry about these, you know, your supplier, your customers going out of business um, during the middle of this. And also, your orders are, are not are, and revenues are not cyclical. So generally higher quality businesses tend to be non-cyclical. Low quality businesses tend to be cyclical. This is not always true, but it's a good sign. So it means that Solitron is not exposed to the economic cycle. Their orders and their growth and their revenue will not be driven 
based upon whether we are in a recession, a depression, or an expansion. Basically, Solotron is going to do its thing regardless of the economic status. But it is exposed to the government budget cycle. So if at any point the U.S. government defense spending is cut, then that could impact Soltron. But that's not necessarily driven at all by the economic cycle. You could be in a recession and the government spending could be going fine and you could be in um, a massive expansion and the government spending could be cut. It's all going to be driven by politics. It makes it really hard to predict, but it means in general, you don't have to worry about cyclicality in the business. And historically at least, um, defense cuts has, have not been a major concern. So because we're not facing um, any problems with payments, we have good customers, and we're not competing on price, we can lead to higher returns on invested capital. So all signs of this being a very high quality business. And so when I was rating this company originally, I said it was going to be an exceptional quality business because they can be the sole source provider for products and um, they're focusing on a niche market that discourages competition. So there wasn't any sign that the durability of their market was going to be impacted in the near term or the long term. And so we could, should continue to expect the company to not only have the potential for high returns on capital in the short term, but also for that to be retained into the future. In other words, exactly the type of company that I want to consider buying. Now, that leads us to valuation and it leads us to talking now about other factors we need to consider and really the two are valuation and management. So one piece I haven't touched on because it's not as much of a concern today, but it was when I considered starting to buy it last year was the financial statements. As of April, 2021, Soltron Devices is current on their reporting to the SEC. And all of their financial statements, they have audited financials out now. They're up to date on their annual reports and everything like that. But when I began buying in 2020, this wasn't true. They had been behind for a few years on reporting their audited financial statements. And they had been going through the last stage of a business turnaround that had begun in 2015 when new management took over. So the CEO of Solotron Devices is Tim Erickson. I actually interviewed him on the podcast in a previous episode, and that was episode 50. We talked about microcap investing in general. We did not talk about Soltron devices specifically, but if you're interested in the CEO, you can listen to that episode to learn more about him, learn more about how he thinks about um, companies and that sort of thing. Um, but the key piece is, is that he is a hedge fund manager. He's an activist investor for Solatron. He actually ran an activist campaign in 2015 and became CEO in 2016. After winning his activist campaign, he got onto the board and began making changes. Around the time that he got onto the board when he took over, uh, the company had revenues around $7.5 million and was, in the short term at least, losing money. Um, they are expecting to exceed ten point or to exceed ten million dollars in revenue this year for the fiscal year twenty twenty one, which actually ended 
in February of 2021. So the fiscal year is a little bit weird. Basically, their fiscal year is whichever year ends at the end of February, and it's just due to the cycle of um, when they get military orders. So the last day of February is the end of their fiscal year. And so their fiscal year 2021 ended in February 21. And their fiscal year 2022 will end in February 2022. It's just a framing to be aware of. So when I say that 2021 financials is what would be the last 12 months um, that has just been completed. So for the last 12 months, they expect revenue to have exceeded $10 million, which is important as we'll go into now. And they expect to be quite profitable. Um, and that has already shown in the nine months of earnings that have been reported thus far. <sighs> Talking a lot on this one. So let's dive, continue our little dive in here. So why is this important? Um, the price of Solotron got low and dropped into the dollar range per share in large part due to this turnaround process. When the CEO took over, they had a large cash balance. The cash balance was drained down over time as they worked on fixing many cultural issues and audit type issues within the company um, over the course of the last few years. Those turnarounds have been put in place. The company has been turned around. Revenue has grown again. They fixed some customer relationships, um, made some internal replacements, and now we have a growing company once again. So basically, you had a fairly stagnant company for many years, two decades, um, since the 90s. And during that time, revenues were pretty stable in the eight to $9 million range, and they had never broken above $10 million because it wasn't as focused on growth. It was more focused on, um, due to the lack of competition, just raising prices as you could, locking in gains where you could, and not really trying to build those long-term relationships. So I believe with Tim Erickson on board, that's what we're doing now. We're building long-term relationships with our customers. We're building those um, relationship-based businesses to grow our revenue over the long term. And now there's a growth mindset. And so that's going to be really important as we talk about valuation. So when I bought into the company, the company wasn't reporting current financials. They were just providing press releases, reporting the unaudited um, estimates of sales and earnings to the public. And that's when I bought in is when it became clear that the company had turned profitable. So I don't like buying companies that are not showing a profit. I don't want to buy companies that are burning cash. I don't want to buy companies that are losing money. And so for the first few years of the turnaround, the company was burning cash, losing money, um, fixing things, investing in new equipment, all those things that are good for the future of the business, but they hadn't been showing any results. And so there was always a chance that it wouldn't work out. There was a chance that the turnaround wouldn't be successful. And those are risks that I don't want to take. Those are risks that I don't feel comfortable taking. I want to see the improvement before I take the risk. And the goal being, if I see the improve, I don't need to see the complete improvement. I just need to see that the turnaround will work before I dive on, dive in. And that's what I did. So when I began buying, it was clear that the turnaround had started working. Revenues were growing again, and they had reached break-even at the beginning of the year. And they were on their way to a profitable 2021. 
so my point with buying into the business was that this was a business that had reached break even and was going to start seeing massive earnings growth. Because what happens in a manufacturing business is you have operating leverage. And the way operating leverage works is it's the ability to turn small increases in revenue into large increases in earnings. Basically, that your your gross margins and your operating margins are going to grow faster, or at least your operating margins are going to grow faster than your sales. So how does this happen? Basically, your fixed costs are a big part of the business. So when you're a manufacturing company, you own a manufacturing plant. You have a certain number of employees. You have a certain number of pieces of equipment. And that's a lot of cost that's just built into your business model. And what happens is those costs stay the same whether you're making $5 million in revenue, $10 million in revenue, or $15 million in revenue. So every incremental dollar in revenue is vastly more valuable as it goes up because now you don't have new costs to go along with that revenue. So you could increase revenue by a million dollars, and if you don't increase your costs, that's all going to drop to the bottom line. You're going to see massive increases in profit. And so what attracted me to this company is that's what I started to see. That's what I started to see from looking at their bottom lines, looking at what's going to happen through reaching this crossover point. The power of going from break-even to positive earnings is that all of the incremental growth, assuming the company keeps on growing, can really drive future profits. So, I've talked a lot about this in qualitative terms, but let's talk quantitative terms now. Okay, so in the middle of 2020, when I was considering this company, I originally was estimating that Solotron devices would earn $500,000 in the year 2021. The fiscal year 2021, again, going to use fiscal years instead of calendar years because that is the way that the company reports earnings. So please forgive me if that gets confusing, but that's why I laid that out. So the current year, and I was buying in Q1, Q2, Q3, of the fiscal 2021 year, I was expecting them to have current year earnings of $500,000. The company has approximately $2 million per share, which would equate to about, let's see, would equate to about 25 cents per share in earnings. And if you put a 10x multiple on that, that would be $2.50 per share. And at the time that I was buying the stock, the stock was trading at $2.10 per share up to about $2.50 a share. And I thought I was very safe buying a company at less than 10 times a very conservative estimate of their earnings because that would be extremely safe. And I thought that they would continue to grow rapidly in the future. And so what I was doing during last year was said, okay, Solotron devices should earn 25 cents per share in 2021. And I think by the end, within the next five years, they will report earnings of at least a dollar per share. I think that's what I ended up with. So I was very conservative in my analysis. I said, okay, for 2021, let's hit $500,000 in earnings. And for 2025, we're going to hit a million dollars in earnings. 
which would be equivalent to 50 cents per share in earnings. Again, $2 million, two million shares outstanding. It's a little more than that. It's like 2.06 million um, shares outstanding right now. Oh, I guess 2.08 million shares outstanding now, but it all rounds out. And so I was saying, okay, if in five years, by the year 2025, they grow their earnings to a million dollars per year, that'd be 50 cents per share, and I'm buying at half that, you know, I'm basically buying the stock at four to five earnings per share out those five years, and in current earnings, it's less than 10 times per share, and if you just discounted back, I use a 10% discount rate then I could easily, on a conservative basis, value the company at more than $3 per share. So these were my very conservative numbers that I was mapping out in my head. And I even got to those numbers by saying that they would achieve $13 million in revenue by 2025. Again, this is when they were forecasting about $10, $10.5 million in revenue for um, 2021. So they didn't need to grow it that much. And so I was thinking operating profit could be 1.75 million by 2025. And then I took off 750 grand for potentially increasing costs. And I just said that was 1 million. So I was was already projecting a lot of operating leverage, but I didn't want to take credit for that in my initial analysis. So when I bought initially, which again, most of my purchases were below a $2.50 per share, Originally, and I've bought on the way up. Current stock price for those listening is around $7 per share. Let's see what the stock price is today when I'm recording. So the stock price is currently $7.25 per share, um, valuing the company at about um, $15 million. Um, So we'll we'll get back down to that. But let's dive into the original thought process here because that explains how this grows over time and you can understand how my thought process has changed from a year ago to today because it's been about a year since I started buying shares. So we have covered that when I first started buying, I was forecasting 2021 earnings to be $500,000 a year. What will 2021 earnings actually be? So for the first nine months of the year, that's what they've they reported Q1, Q2, and Q3 already. And for the first nine months of the year, Soltron Devices has reported earnings of $977,000 or $0.47 cents per share. Now remember, I forecast $0.25 cents per share or $500,000, but they've already hit just about a million dollars in earnings for 2021. So I was forecasting a million dollars in earnings for 2025, and they've hit it five years early. What that means is that my original forecasts were incredibly conservative, way too conservative, and my valuation was way too conservative. So my current valuation is substantially higher because we still have one quarter in this year, which means that I expect them to beat a million dollars in earnings. And we're going to use for the rest of our conversation today an assumption that instead of assuming they're going to earn only half a million dollars in 2021, I'm going to assume that Soltron Devices earns $1.2 million per share in earning, or $1.2 million, not per share, $1.2 million in profit for the year 2021. So this is, let's see, 1.2 divided by 0.5. So this is... 240% or 140% higher 
than my original projection for the year. These are the types of surprises you want to have as an investor. This is why you value companies on a conservative basis. So when you go from half a million to $1.2 million in earnings, all of that is expansion in the multiple that you're going to be able to receive on your stock, which is basically what we've seen in that time. The stock price has more than doubled over the last year as the market has recognized that estimates generally were too low for this business. So what do we have now? We have a company earning, and again, I'm going to say we have the, the fiscal year's ended, but it's not been reported yet. Hopefully, we'll get that report within a month or so in May of 2021. But the the 2021 earnings for Solotron is going to be about, I think conservatively, 1.2 million a year. It could be higher. It could be as high as maybe 1.5 million in 2021, but I'm going to say 1.2 million because I don't know how the the revenue is going to work out and I don't know exactly how their earnings are going to break down with cost. Q3 was slightly worse than I thought it was going to be. Q2 was better than I thought it was going to be. And so it's hard to mesh between those. But so far in the first nine months, they earned 47 cents per share. And I think you're going to hit about 60 cents per share, which is that 1.2 million for the 2021 year. So if we say 0.60 times 2 million shares, you're going to have 1.2. Oh, that's not what I want to do. I'm doing the math wrong. So basically we have 60 cents per share and the current stock price is $7.25. So we're gonna divide that by 60 cents per share. And we say the current PE is 12. So this is a company trading at a PE of 12 based upon trailing 12 months earnings. Is that a fair price? Is that a cheap price? What do we think? Well, we need to think about the future. We need to think about the past. So this is a company that if you look broadly over the last two decades, was profitable at eight to nine million dollars in revenue. It was fairly stable, fairly reliable, has a strong earnings profile over the last 20 years. You didn't really report losses besides during this turnaround period. Um, so now we're again reporting profits, record profits for the business, and we have a profile of growth. A 12 times earning multiple is the multiple you should put on a company that's basically zero growth. Because a 12 times earnings multiple is like an 8% earnings yield. The S&P 500 is not going to beat 8% probably going forward from current prices. Um, it should do substantially worse than 8%. And I think the market as a whole probably puts a discount rate on in stock investing right now of 8% or less. I've seen numbers of 6%, 7%, 8%. I don't think it's really feasible to expect stocks as a whole to return more than 8% in the current market environment. If it was the requirement to turn more than 8%, you'd see prices lower. And so with current market prices, I think the average market discount rate is about 8%, which means the market is valuing Solartron devices as a zero growth company. So as investors, we can invert the situation. Instead of ascribing a valuation to Solartron, we can think, let's invert it and say, what is the market assuming? The market's assuming zero growth. Is that reasonable? 
And I don't think so. So through my talks with management, through my analysis of the business, through seeing the reports that are coming out about growing revenue, growing bookings, we can anticipate future growth with this business. So let's think through what that's going to do to the stock price. We're going to say the company is valued as no growth now, which means if they have growth, it's undervalued. And if they have a lot of growth, it's substantially undervalued. But if they have no growth, it's fair value. This is what I would call a very attractive investment. So a company that has historically had no growth is trading for the fair value of being no growth. So it'd be fairly valued for no growth. You're going to receive a better than market return if you were to buy it today and the company doesn't grow. Okay, so let's talk growth. For 2021, bookings, so you have revenue and bookings. That's one thing to understand with these types of businesses. They operate on these contract basis. They get these orders in, and there's a delay of 9 to 12 months from when orders are received, from when orders are fully refilled. So bookings translate into revenue over the course of about the next year. Revenue for 2021 is going to be about $10.5 million dollars. Bookings for 2021 is going to be about $12 million. What does that mean? Well, there's some discrepancy in terms of when the bookings are received versus how they translate into 2021 earnings versus 2022 earnings, uh, or revenue, rather. But generally, it would be a useful thing to say if you had bookings of $10 million dollars, in 2021, then you're likely to have revenue of $10 million in 2022, one year later. So with $12 million in bookings for 2021, I'm expecting $12 million in revenue for 2022, which compared to $10.5 million of current revenue represents growth of over 10%. So let's see what the math on that says real quick. We're being overly precise here, but just for purposes of discussion. So that's 14% revenue growth if they achieve $12 million in revenue in 2022, one year from now. Or really the current year is 2022, fiscal year. And so if they're able to achieve that, you're going to be looking at $12 million in revenue. Well, we had $1.2 million in operating earnings for 2021. Again, this is my estimate. It's not the reported number, um, but that's the number I'm using for estimation purposes. So if we think about what would the profitability be in 2022? Well, you've increased your revenue by 1.5 million. How much will earnings increase? Well, earnings aren't going to increase a full 1.5 million because some of that revenue is going to be cost of goods sold. So they're just costs that go into selling a product. But we're mostly a fixed cost business. So we had 14% revenue growth. Does that mean we're going to have 14% earnings growth? And the answer to me is no. I think you're going to have substantially higher earnings growth than revenue growth. And I think this is going to be true for quite a long time with this business. So if the company can achieve a 14% revenue growth in 2022, you might actually see earnings growth of 30%, 40%, or 50%. 
but certainly more than 14%. Because what's happening is you're getting that operating leverage. You're getting that leverage of going from a large fixed cost base and the incremental revenue is dropping to the bottom line. So it's hard to predict what those numbers will be, but I've seen in my past estimates on this company that I've way underestimated the speed at which the company can translate its revenue into earnings or can translate its growth into earnings. So as I think about 2022, I see that 14% revenue growth translating into earnings growth of like 40%. I think the earnings could grow from about $1.2 million to $2 million. And now $2 million would be about a dollar per share in earnings. And I just said that we're trading at around $7.25 per share, which would be a seven times PE multiple on this company. And this is a company that doesn't have debt. This is a company that's operating with no debt. It's just cash on the balance sheet and an operating business. So to buy a company with cash on the balance sheet and trading at seven times this year's earnings, not past earnings, it's not trailing 12 months earnings, but this year's projected earnings, that's very attractive. So why does that happen? So we're saying that we're going to get revenue growth of $1.5 million, and that would translate into potentially $800,000 in earnings growth. That's a huge incremental return. It's like almost a 40 to 50% um, return on incremental revenue. Will you actually achieve that this year? I don't know. Revenue could be lower than I expect. Um, revenues could certainly be higher than I expect, but it's it's just numbers I, that I'm pulling from these bookings. It, depending upon how those hit, some of that could have been pulled into this year. COVID complicates everything because a lot of orders have been delayed. Um, and then there's additional complications that we can dive into. So you might not actually hit $2 million in, in earnings in 2022, but it's the sort of thing that you're quickly on track for. And that doesn't take credit for any of the cash on the balance sheet. You have about $3.7 million in net cash on the balance sheet. I'm assuming that the um, Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP loan that they took out of about eight hundred grand, has been forgiven. Um, they were able to apply for that forgiveness in January, but we don't yet have the report on whether they've done so or whether it's been approved or not. Um, but if it has been forgiven, then they would have about net cash of $3.7 million. Again, on a company that's valued at $15 million. So you have about 20% of the balance sheet, which is just net cash. Um, very attractive for a company with no debt. So your PE ratio is actually lower than it looks is basically the point there. <sighs> Let's see what next. Okay, so this company has $1.2 million in current earnings and over the next year is going to grow those earnings. Now, we said the company is fairly valued as a no growth company at 12 times earnings. But how much should the company trade at if it's growing double digit earnings? Well, it's hard to say because you're going to get a return on your investment that's going to be some combination of the dividends paid out to you and the earnings growth. So basically, your return on investment is going to be could be approximated as dividends plus earnings growth over time. And so if you need 
uh, an 8% return, then you need at least 8% of dividends plus earnings growth. Well, if earnings are growing 20% a year, and again, we're dropping from my projection of maybe 30 or 40% growth, but if earnings are growing 20% a year, then buying the stock could lead to 20% returns on your investment as long as the company continues to grow at that rate. Well, when you're at this crossover point in operating leverage, you could have many, many years of 10, 20, 30, 40% earnings growth. You could be looking at a very long-term future of growing at higher than average rates, not because your revenue is growing that fast, but because you're turning a 10% revenue growth rate into a 20% earnings growth rate. Now, that can't continue forever, but at least for the next three to five years, as you're expanding your operating margins, as you're reaching, getting those economies of scale, you can receive a lot of that benefit that's coming from having a successful turnaround and having that growth in earnings rapidly expanding. So do I think we're going to get $2 million in earnings for 2022? No, I used to. And then the company bought a new manufacturing facility. Now, this is really good news for shareholders. Really good news for shareholders. The company has agreed to buy, um, or at least a stated um, agreement to buy, a new manufacturing facility. I think it was for $4.2 million. Let's see. Yeah. For a purchase price of $4.2 million, the company is going to move their manufacturing facility from one that they rent to one that they own. So they currently rent a manufacturing facility and they're going to move into one that they're going to own over the course of this fiscal year. So I think during, um, they have a lease for their current facility that ends at the end of December, 2021. And they are planning to purchase in April of 2021 a new manufacturing facility. Now, what this is going to do is they're currently paying rent in the range of $450,000 a year, I think. It's in the $400,000 range. Um, I think I'd have to look up the exact numbers. Um, It might have been $477,000, something like that, for the current year expected amount. And they're going to be replacing that with a mortgage on a manufacturing facility that they own. Now, this is very attractive over the medium and long term for the company because what it does is it eliminates annual rent increases and replaces it with a fixed mortgage payment. And so instead of paying rent at a very high rate that's growing year to year to year, they're going to be paying a fixed mortgage payment that's going to build equity in the business. They're going to eventually completely own their building and manufacturing facility debt-free in the future. And now they're going to get additional operating leverage because of two things. First and foremost, their mortgage is going to be substantially cheaper than their rent. So if the rent right now is $450,000 a year, it's going to be hard for it to see how they don't spend less than $300,000 a year on their mortgage plus insurance and everything like that. If you run the numbers of $4.2 million, you look at basically commercial interest rates, how that runs a company of this size, it's very attractive at lowering the cost for this business. So you could see an immediate cost reduction of somewhere in the range of $100,000 to $200,000 of immediate expense reductions for the business going forward. And that benefit only goes up over time because again, 
the rent was going up three, five, seven percent a year fixed that was already built into their contract on their previous rent. And if they had chosen to expand it for another five years, that's what they were fixed into. But now instead of going up three to five percent a year, it's now stuck. It's stopped at this mortgage rate. And so they're going to gain an immediate benefit of one to two hundred thousand dollars a year. And that benefit will grow over time as they build equity, reduce their debt, all along those types of things. So however this is an immediate benefit of $100,000 to $200,000 a year of savings that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And they're going to see a lot of other savings. This is a smaller facility, so you're going to have lower utility costs. Um, they're going to be paying for a lot less space than they used to. It basically cuts the space of their facility in half, but they didn't need as much space as they had. And so they're becoming a lot more efficient um, over the long term. However, because of the timing you're going to have weird financial statements for fiscal 2022. And investors in the stock need to be aware of this because it's going to make the financials look worse than the actual underlying business for one more year. What happens is when you buy a facility like this, it's going to take time to move. So if they buy the facility in April, they close on the facility in April. This is an if, I don't know for sure it'll happen. But I believe the closing date would be um, April 30th of 2021. So what you have now is eight months from May to December where they're going to have two payments. They're going to be paying rent on their current facility and they'll be paying the mortgage payment on their new facility for those eight months, which means for those eight months, you're going to have an additional payment that wasn't in the original thing expenses. So if I thought that the company would hit earnings of 1.2 million, or or sorry, if I thought the company would hit earnings of $2 million for fiscal 2022, I need to reduce that now by the incremental cost that I have from buying this business. This isn't a long-term cost, but what it will do is it will make the growth of earnings look not as good as they actually are for this next year only. So I said a number in here of $300,000 for the mortgage payment. So that means I need to, I need to basically punish the company for $300,000 in the current year in what I'm estimating from 2 million to 1.7 million. In addition to that, there's going to be a substantial moving expenses. There's going to be substantial renovation and CapEx expenses, and that could cut another 200000 It might cut a whole $700,000 off that. So you might actually see the company only report earnings of between $1 million to $1.5 million. And that it might even be worse than that for the fiscal 2022 year. Even though revenue is growing even though the earnings power of the business is growing, even though everything's getting better, they're cutting costs, they're lowering their expenses, they're reducing utilities, they're reducing the rent payments, all of those things are getting better, but you might not see that show up in the actual report during this fiscal 2022 year. Basically, you're going to have financials that don't reflect the underlying business during this year. You have to be prepared for that Because if you get confused and you expect a blowout earnings number in 2022, then you might be disappointed. You might not understand why the business is performing worse than expected. I don't really think management will 
clearly articulate what's happening there. They might say it, but they're, I don't think they're going to break down the numbers like I just did. So even though the business is getting better, the numbers might not look like that for at least a few months. Because what's going to happen is we're going to have to wait till calendar year 2022, basically January and February of 2022, before you see the full impact of this cost reduction. Because it's going to take a month to renovate this new facility. It's going to take a long time to move in. They're going to have to do, you're going to have closing expenses. You're going to have all sorts of stuff along those lines. They're going to show up as one-time costs. But these are true one-time costs because once they move into a new facility, it's all going to drop off. So now your 2023 numbers are going to look substantially better than they otherwise would have because you've shaved off a few hundred thousand dollars of cost. And if the business continues to grow, it'll be even more profitable and you're going to have substantially more profit down the line. All this is to say that the management is making great decisions to reduce cost on the business and you should continue to see decisions like this being made. So this is what I like to see in a business. This is what I'm looking for in a stock. I want to buy companies that win if there's no growth. That's what it is now. Current trailing 12-month earnings, PE is 12 If there's no growth, I'm paying a fair price. If there is growth, which I expect, I'm paying a really cheap price. Because at seven times earnings, which is what I said that the stock price is, at current prices, $7.25, at seven times what I expect the earnings power of this business, not the reported number, but the earnings power of this business at $2 million a year or a dollar per share, you're buying the company at seven times earnings. You also have a dollar and fifty cents per share in cash, which means you're actually paying like somewhere in the range of five to six times earnings. Once you take out the cash, basically six times earnings net of cash, um, based upon the earnings power of this business. And the company is not only growing; it's growing double digits in revenue. It's growing earnings power over time at a greater than 20% rate per year. And you're getting all of that at a substantially cheap price of 12 times earnings, 7 times earnings, or 6 times earnings, depending upon how you're doing those calculations. So let's think back to how I began this. When I bought the company originally, now I bought shares, I started buying shares. Um, I think my first purchase was $2.75 per share. I bought shares all the way down to $2.10 per share. And then as the price has risen over the last year, I've continued to buy shares. I bought shares at $3.60. I bought shares in the $5.75 range, and I've bought shares at $7 per share. So I've continued to buy shares all the way up. What happened, though, is I began with a very, very conservative valuation. My very first valuation included a liquidation analysis. I didn't cover that today because it's not really relevant anymore. Um, but at the time, it was relevant. Um, and Before knowing whether they would have the reported financials. And I began with a very conservative valuation that I was buying a company at less than 10 times earnings that I thought would grow. Now, we have a company that's still trading at less than 10 times earnings of the current earnings power and is growing at double digits, but likely growing at over 20% per year. And on top of that, they have massive operating leverage. So this is what I'm looking for. I want a cheap company. I want a very high quality business. Remember, we begin with the high quality businesses and I want them to grow substantially over time. 
but I want management to be making smart capital allocation decisions, which is why I covered the recent decision on buying the new facility. This is a very good use of shareholder capital. As a shareholder, I want to see management making decisions that lower the costs and set us up for long-term future gains. Because what we have here is when I look out 20 years, we're going to have a paid-for manufacturing facility. We're not going to pay any rent. And all we're going to have is insurance and taxes on our manufacturing facility. What that means is we're going to have a massive cost advantage. And that advantage is going to get better and better every year for the next 20 to 30 years. Earnings are going to grow substantially better than they would have because we're making smart capital allocation decisions like that. I did not expect us to buy a a new manufacturing facility in 2021, but I'm excited about the future because I know management's making decisions that are going to lead to greater earnings for me as a shareholder. So when I buy a company, it needs to have the right business, it needs to have the right valuation, and it needs to have good capital allocation. This is the three-legged stool on every business that I buy. And when it has all three of those, I bet big. So briefly, in the last few minutes here of what I want to cover, just to put this in context. So this is currently largest position in my portfolio because when I buy stocks that meet all three of these, I like to have a high conviction bet on them. My portfolio is based upon 20% portfolio allocation to each stock. And what happens is when you do that and it works like it's worked so far, because again, I bought when I thought the earnings would be $500,000 and they turned out to be $1.2 million, the stock's more than doubled. And so you get to experience all that growth in your position during that time. I like to only buy companies that I think are potential tin baggers. And I think this is a potential tin bagger company. And that's because it has long-term earnings growth potential. It has a massive earnings growth potential over time, and it can grow that way for very many years is what I'm expecting. But also when you have intelligent capital allocation, you can get good positive surprises like that. So those are things I'm looking for in a company. I hope this is a useful episode. It's tough to do a long-form podcast stock thesis. Mini stock thesis episodes I see are like 10 minutes long. Um, and, and those are helpful to give you the initial ideas. But what I really wanted to do was to dive deep on a company and provide my thinking about it, both as I made my purchase decision and as it's developed over time. Because when I look out into the next five years, I don't see this company making just $2 million a year. I see us making three, four, five million million, $5 million in profit. The company's currently trading for $15 million market cap, but that market cap can raise over time in line with the earnings, but likely faster than the earnings because it's so cheap. So this is a company that should trade at 20, 25 times earnings, which means if you're hitting those earnings growth targets, we should grow from the $5 million company that it was when I first bought it to the $15 million company it is today to the $50 million company I think it can be within a few years into a $100 million plus company over the medium term. That's when you start hitting those 10 bagger targets. That's when you start really seeing the growth and in interest as you grow these companies from relatively small to relatively large. 
seeing the massive growth over time. Revenue is growing double digits. I think earnings will grow faster than revenue, and I think the stock price will grow faster than earnings. And that is the perfect setup for a 10-bagger. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope it has been value for you. You can listen to all my episodes on my website at DIYinvesting.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Trey Henninger, T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. And you can see all of my new updates when I post them there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you choose to become a patron of the show, you can receive exclusive insights into my investing process at DIYinvesting.org slash patron. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.